Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for this opportunity and, and this gathering of men who desire to study your word and to grow deep in the faith. We do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be present among us and that we'll treat these truths as eternal truths, important truths, truths that are for our life and godliness. We pray that you'll show us what you have done here in this word to reveal Christ, Christ and his salvation and his salvation for our souls. Lord, build us up in the faith, encourage us, and cause us to walk in your statutes. Yes. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Genesis 15. Genesis 15. We'll read verses 1 to 7. Genesis 15, 1 to 7. <coughs> it may seem like the paragraph should go on before uh, or after verse 7, but I think that in terms of the con- concept and the events, it makes sense to at least pause right there because there's a lot to explain in the first seven verses, and then we'll deal with the rest of the chapter in the second hour. Genesis 15, verses 1 to 7. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Let's pray. Again, our Lord, we ask now, now you will show us indeed what it means to understand this word about this offspring. And Lord, understand it in reference to Christ. May we understand, Lord, the true gospel of Christ because of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In verse 1, after these things is in relation to the previous chapter when Abraham was in jeopardy of losing everything because the foreigners had come, the foreigners had attacked his possessions, his relatives, they took away Lot, they took away everyone and everything. He was in jeopardy, but by the hand of God, by the provision of God, he was able to take some trained men and go and recover everything that was lost, and he didn't lose a single soul, he did not lose a single possession. And then, when he returned, he determined not to take any of the booty of the war. He determined not to take any of that, because he did not go for that reason. He went for the right reason, he did not go to exploit anyone, and even, he gave the king of Sodom whatever belonged to him, and he didn't take anything that belonged to the king of Sodom, because he didn't want the king of Sodom to say that he made Abraham rich. So, after this has happened, this is on his mind, all of these events, and the potential loss of everything, and the potential disruption in the promises of God that God had made to him before. That's why 
here, the word of the Lord comes to him in verse 1 to assure him, to assure him. This will remind us that there is usually in Scripture an alternation or a going back and forth between something that is good that happens to the people of God and then something bad. Some blessing happens and then some cursing. Or some blessing happens and then some chastisement. This is constantly happening. In our chapter, it happens to be for Abraham's faith, a chapter of promise, a chapter of blessing, a chapter of assurance to Abraham that God is with him and will take care of him. However, it's not going to happen easily. So there again, we have a mixture in this same chapter in chapter 15. It won't happen easily, which we will see in the next section. But firstly, the assurance to Abraham in verses 1 to 7. In verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It also says this in verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this dialogue is happening between him and God, between him and God. Now, the question arises, who is this word or what is this word? It says the word came to him, but what happened? Was it simply that, as it says in verse 1, he had a vision, and then in the vision, it's called a vision, was there merely an audible voice? No, I don't believe that that was the case. It was a vision, as it says in verse 1, and therefore he must have seen the Lord. And the word of the Lord, he must have seen the Lord. And I submit, as we have discussed before, and we shall see many more times in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, that whenever the Lord appears to his people, whether as an individual or as a corporate body, it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is who appeared to Abraham. This is the one that... Abraham believed in. This was the object of his faith. For example, in verse 6, then he believed in the Lord. Who is the Lord? It's the Lord Jesus. He believed in him. Why do we say this? Why do we need to say this, even though the verses here that we just read don't say it like that? How is it and why is it that we should believe that? We should because of the verses that we have here on the board. Cross-references to chapter 15, verse 1. The first one is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. He's explaining the incarnation when Jesus was born into the world. When when he was born, he's explaining that, but he's not only explaining it in reference to his incarnation, but something more. Notice, John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. At any time, it says, the only begotten God or only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has explained Him. The Son has explained the Father. And why? Because no one has seen the Father at any time. No man has seen God at any time. God the Father. But the Son of God explains the Father. At every time, every time, it is the Son. Chapter 5, John five thirty-seven. John five thirty-seven. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, 
or nor seen his form. You have not heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Chapter 6, verse 46. John 6, 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Continue to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John 8, 48. 8, 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The people are against Christ, and Christ is saying, Well, Abraham and the prophets, they weren't against me. Why are you against me? Right? That's his point. And then they say, when Jesus says about Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw and was glad. They wonder, how is it possible that Abraham could could have seen you when Abraham is dead and you are not even 50 years old and Abraham lived 2,000 years ago? How is it? And Jesus answers. He says... Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they knew he was claiming deity, the name that God identified with himself in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. I am who I am. This is who he's calling himself. I am. The I am. And they knew that. That's why they wanted to stone him to death. They wanted to for blasphemy. Though he wasn't committing blasphemy because that's who he truly was. Then... If he's claiming deity, and our passage in Genesis 15 says, the word of the Lord appeared to him. Well, who was, the, who was that word? Right. Who was that word? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word in Genesis 15, who reveals himself to Abraham, is Christ. The object of Abraham's faith was Christ. It's important to establish that point. If we don't establish that point, then the object of Abraham's faith could be God vaguely, God generally. And then it's all up in the air. Well, what did he know about God? What did he believe about God? But when it's specified as faith in Christ, then we can talk about the gospel. 
Then we can talk about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness reckoned to us, given to us by faith in him. That's what's important and that's what needs to be established with Abraham. And this is so important that Galatians 1, 6 to 10 says, if anyone comes to you and preaches the gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. That false gospel is under a curse. Any gospel contrary to the gospel that the scripture teaches that Paul preached is under a curse. It's a heretical, false, accursed gospel. And then in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul cites some of these passages here in Genesis in order to prove that Abraham believed the same gospel that Paul preached. Abraham believed the same gospel that Paul preached. There's always been one gospel. Always only one. Now back to chapter 15. 15, verse 1. It says that it was a vision, and in this vision, various things happen. Various things happen to confirm the faith and the promises of God to Abraham. Firstly, he, he says, Do not fear Abram. Now, why would God assure him that Abraham should not be afraid? Should not be afraid? Well, there might be a couple of reasons, and I think perhaps the second reason is probably the primary reason. The first reason is he might be bewildered and afraid and timid based on what has just happened. But I think even more and more imminently is that God is appearing to him in a vision, and what is the natural or the proper response, let's say, the proper response in Scripture whenever a a person sees God. They are afraid, and they are afraid of what? Afraid of being put to death instantly. Afraid of being put to death instantly. We have examples of this. Genesis 16, Genesis 16, 13. 16, 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees, for she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? God appeared, Christ appeared, actually, to Hagar, and there she's amazed that she's still alive, that she was not put to death. In Genesis 32, Genesis 32, Jacob, Jacob sees God, which was also a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Genesis 32, Jacob does... And then after the incident, this is what Jacob says, 32.30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush. Remember that burning bush incident. And Moses is curious, and he hears the voice of God. And then God says the following, 3.6. He said also, 3.6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then finally, We all know Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah 6, that famous passage in Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, where he sees the Lord, it says. He also has a vision, 
And he knows that he ought to be put to death. He's afraid and ought to be put to death. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. So it's a vision. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me! Why woe? Because he sees the Lord. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the Lord, and also this is the Lord Jesus. And when he sees the Lord Jesus, he's also comparing his own sinfulness with the holiness of God. And he also sees that the angels, the seraphim, cover themselves because of the holiness of God. So if the angels do that and they don't have any sin, they cover themselves, how much more should a sinful man be covered and be afraid that he might die instantly being in the presence of God? He had a proper view of himself and of God. Mm. He did. And also, for further reference, Isaiah saw Christ here according to John the Apostle in John 12, 37 to 43. In John 12, 37 to 43, the Apostle John explicitly says that Isaiah saw Christ. In verse 41, he says, Isaiah spoke these things. It says, he spoke these things for he saw his glory and he spoke of him. He saw his glory and he spoke of him, of Christ. The same thing with Abraham. But God being merciful and God being gracious and God giving his promises to Abraham assures him, I haven't come here in judgment. I've come here in grace and mercy. And I'm going to tell you about that. And further assures him, uh, assures him in chapter 15, verse 1, I am a shield to you. I am a shield to you. Obviously, it's, it's an allusion to the previous chapter. Right. A, an allusion to the previous chapter when God... Practically speaking, in terms of that warfare, he was a shield to Abraham. He protected him and protected everything he owned, and all the people were recovered. No one lost, uh, was lost. This is what God constantly assures us of who he is. He is a shield in the midst of battle, not only real battle, but spiritual battle. In everything, he is a shield. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you and you shall tread upon their high places. There, an assurance that the people of God will be protected by God, are saved by God, and we will have victory over our enemies. Just like Abraham, just like us, we, we who believe in the true gospel, we are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Amen. That's what we have in store for us. Not just Abraham, though Abraham is the father of all who believe. He is the spiritual father in that he is the model. He's the 
perfect example, and God uses him in Scripture, not just here, but throughout Scripture, so that we might be like him and might inherit what Abraham inherited. Right. Right? So that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 14. And finally here in verse 1, he announces, Your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. In the New American Standard Bible, as I read, it seems to put a distinction, and it might be misinterpreted in this distinction between I am a shield and your reward, that the reward is something or someone different from God. But the KJV says, I am a shield to you and your exceeding great reward. Yes. Okay? Which means that KJV is taking reward to be God himself also. The shield and the reward is God himself. Yes. And I think that that is the correct meaning, even if the New American Standard or other translations don't say that clearly. Okay? I don't think that the re reward is someone different than the shield. I think we're talking about two images of the same person. That is God himself or specifically Christ himself. Now let's see some evidence of that. Numbers chapter 18. Numbers 18, it, first in symbolism or first in typology, Numbers chapter 18 and verse 20. 1820. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. The Aaronites, the priests, the high priestly family, they were not to have any land in the land of Israel. And God says, I am your portion. I am your inheritance. I am your land. I am all of this to you and for you. I am. And remember, it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, for you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, right? We are priests, so we also have only God as our inheritance in that way, in that sense. Psalm 73, Psalm 73, 73, 25. Psalm 73, 25. This is now speaking generally not just of priests, but generally and spiritually. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yes. My portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Yes. And then Hebrews. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 35. Hebrews 10, 35. 10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Moses, also, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 26. 11, 26. Moses is the, the subject here. 
considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. His object of faith was Christ, because it says there the reproach of Christ, which has to be a reference to the sufferings and death of Christ. And it says he was looking to this Christ as his reward, and verse 27, as seeing him who is unseen, the invisible God, invisible Christ. He believed in him. That's why he rejected what all he had in Egypt, all of the prosperity and the wealth and the honor. He rejected all of that for the unseen spiritual benefits of Christ. This was Abraham's reward. God himself was his reward. Then, verse 2, back to Genesis 15, 2. 15, 2. If we keep in mind that God himself has always been that which is best for us, best for the people of God, supreme, that in God, Father, Son, and Spirit, this is all we need. And if we keep that in mind, and also keep in mind that once sin entered into the world in Genesis 3, after that, in the curse, a part of the curse was the promise of redemption. Well then, if it says in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, if it says that, then for that seed to crush the head of the serpent and for us to be restored to God, How else could that happen? How else would that happen unless it is God himself who brings that about, right? Right. Not only brings it about in heaven and making sure things happen on the earth, but even the means, the means or the agent or the instrument, the, the practical way in which it carries itself out here on the earth. Why would we not think that it would be God himself who does it? From Genesis 3.15, right? And if Genesis 15 is Christ revealing himself, and Genesis 3.15 is the first promise that Christ would come into the world, born of a woman, as it says in Galatians 4.4, born of a woman, born under the law, then we could understand here why Abraham is wondering about verse 2. What's he wondering? Verse 2. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have give, given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In Abraham's case, he's already been called out of Ur. He's already been called out of sin and paganism. And now he's been told, based on Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that in him, meaning in his offspring, single seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham doesn't have any physical descendants for that to happen at all. So how could he have any spiritual descendants? Because if he has no physical descendants, Christ who is promised to come through his line would never come into the world if he doesn't have any physical descendants. The main thing, in other words, is, okay, God, you told us back in Genesis 3.15 that you would come into the world to pay for my sins. I, I believe that. You called me out of Ur, Abraham saying, I believe that, and now I'm here. You said through my physical descendants, Christ would come, 
but I need many physical descendants for that to happen many, many years from now. And then because Christ comes into the world, I will also have many spiritual descendants who will believe in the same gospel I believe, who will believe in the same Christ I believe in. And this is what will be the blessing of Abraham that comes to the Gentiles through Christ. Thank you, Lord. Right? Yes. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.16, Paul says, and when he says to Abraham and to you, to you and to your seed, he does not say many, he does not say seeds as referring to many, but he says seed, singular, as referring to one that is Christ. Yes. So Christ is the main promise in Genesis 3.15. Abraham is told that the Christ will come through him. Back in Genesis 11 and 12, he's told that, but he doesn't have any physical descendants. So then he's now going to be assured, you will have many physical descendants, and Christ will be one among them. And because Christ is among them, those who believe in Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles, they will all be reckoned as righteous. Whoever believes. This is what's happening right here in these verses, verses 2 to 7. So verse 2. O Lord God. This is the first time it occurs like this. This is the first time. This is Adonai Yahweh. That's what the Hebrew is, Adonai Yahweh, or Adonai Jehovah. Yahweh is more correct, but Adonai Yahweh, that's what we have here. He addresses God like that. In, in, in Isaiah 6, verse 1, it's Isaiah who says, I saw Adonai. Well, who is this Adonai? Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh says to Adonai, to my Adonai, who is this Adonai frequently mentioned in Scripture like this in the Old Testament? It is Christ. Yes. It is Christ. So this is why, and notice what Abraham is calling Christ. He's calling him Adonai and he's calling him Yahweh. Abraham knows about the deity of Christ. Sure. He knows it because of this vision, but he's also acknowledging with it with his own lips. Yes. He knows Adonai, he is his master. He is his sovereign, but he also knows he is his eternal God, Yahweh, the unchanging eternal God. He, that's how he addresses him. And not in vain, because he says, what will you give me since I am childless? And he's got an heir that is his faithful slave in his house, born in his house, and that born in his house is a reference to him being a slave, and he's a faithful slave. Abraham did not practice slavery uh, as uh, torture and things like that. That's not the way it is here. That's not the slavery that Abraham practiced. He practiced uh, a slavery that was kind and beneficent toward the slaves. That's the kind of slavery this is. And in this case, he says, I don't have a son, so this faithful, reliable, trustworthy slave I have, who has been very good to me, and I've been good to him, I will, of necessity, give my inheritance to him, and then that's going to jeopardize what you said earlier, Lord. So I'm, I, I, I'm wondering, what are you going to do, Lord? That's basically his question here. So God's answer, verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. I'm not finished. I'm not finished testing you. I'm not finished. I'm not finished testing you, Abraham. I'm testing your patience. I want you to endure. Now, Abraham, when he arrived in Canaan, was 75 years old. 
And, and Sarah was barren. It says in Genesis 11.30, it says she was barren and they had no child. She had no child. So Abraham is wondering what's going to happen. In chapter 16, when Ishmael's born, he was 86 years old. Yeah. So sometime between age 75 and 86, that's when chapter 15 occurred. So even Abraham saying, it's hopeless for me and it's hopeless for my wife. So what's going to happen? This is God's promise. Um, no, one from your own body, from your own inward parts, he will be your heir. I'm going to do something that is so miraculous and amazing. Yeah. That's the promise to him. And it's going to be so miraculous, verse 5. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So shall your descendants be. You will have so many descendants that they are so innumerable like the stars. Even though there have been astronomers and astrologers who have attempted to count them, they are innumerable. You can't count them. You can give an estimation, but you can't really count them. That's the way it is with Abraham. And also, in many places in which we live today in the United States and many parts of the world, you can't see the stars. You can't see how many stars there are or how brilliant they are or how numerous they are. But if you go into a rural place, you go get away from the fog and the smog, and, and the buildings and all that. You get away, you go to some remote place, look up at night, you will see an amazing sight. You will see glitter and glow that's so amazing out there in the wilderness. That's what he saw. That's what Abraham saw. Showed him those stars. That's the way the descendants will be. And that's the way we will be actually, spiritually, as Daniel says in Daniel 12, 2 to 3. And then we shall shine brightly like the, uh, the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who turn away the many uh, to righteousness, you know, calling them to righteousness, repentance and righteousness. That's the way we are. We are described like this. So that's the promise to Abraham. And this promise, I'm it has a twofold fulfillment. It, or threefold, because the main object is Christ. Christ has to be born physically as right. a descendant of Abraham. Matthew yeah. chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David, right? He has to be a son of Abraham and also a son of David. So the physical descendants are required, but required because the single one has to come. So the physical will be numerous like the stars, innumerable like the stars, and that's because the single one has to come. And he is the object of our faith, Christ. But because Christ comes, there will be many Jews and Gentiles who put faith in Christ, and they will be innumerable like the stars of heaven. That's why it says in Revelation 7, 9, and uh, it says that I saw heaven open and a great multitude in heaven which no one could count. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's what's being said right here also. In Genesis 15.5. A great multitude which no one could count. Well, verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he believed in the Lord. Firstly, we need to ask, why does it say it here? And why does it not say it earlier, such as in chapter 11 or chapter 12? 
when he first did believe. Why is it saying it here? I believe it's saying it here in reference to the previous chapters because it's confirming to us that he did not have just initial faith, but he had regular and consistent faith. And every time God made a promise, he believed those promises. Okay? So what is true of him here was actually first true of him when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It was true back then, but this faith was true of him consistently through his life, such as here, years later. It was still true of him. And when God announced the promise again, or reiterated a promise, clarified the promise, expanded on the promise, whenever he did that, Abraham continued to believe, and his faith was reckoned as righteousness. Okay? So, his faith was reckoned as righteousness initially, and that's all, but he continued to have faith, and it was righteous for him to do so. That's number one. Um, Number two, in terms of the chronology, Notice that circumcision has not occurred yet in the life of Abraham. He is somewhere between 75 to 86 years old. We know he's not 86 yet because in chapter 16, verse 16, it says, And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him, which happened later than chapter 15. He was 86 then. Then in chapter 17, circumcision is introduced. Chapter 17, and in 1724, 1724, it says, Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very, very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. And all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. That also is a reference to the slaves that he owned in verse 27. Whether home-born slaves or money uh, uh, bought slaves, bought from a foreigner, however he acquired those slaves, they were all circumcised too. So, before Abraham was circumcised. This is essential in that because later after Abraham... The Jews, they want to put their confidence in circumcision for their salvation. They want to put put confidence in circumcision, and it's not only circumcision, it's on any kind of human action, any kind of righteous deeds, any kind of obedience or adherence to the laws in order to be saved instead of only Christ, instead of only believing in Christ. They want to say, okay, Messiah is coming, or Messiah has come, we believe in Christ, but we also have to be circumcised, which is the heresy of Acts 15 and the heresy of the book of Galatians. They want to add something to Christ, when it has to be Christ alone. Christ the object of our faith. Faith in Him alone. That's the chronology issue here too, which is Paul's argument in Romans 4. We'll hear more about Romans 4 later. Paul's argument is this very argument. Don't you realize the chronology? And how can we say circumcision is necessary or any ritual is necessary or any number of rituals is necessary when Abraham wasn't saved that way? He was saved before all of that. (laughs) And if Abraham is our model of faith, then why are we detracting and contradicting from that model of faith and believing in works? We should not. 
then it says he believed in the Lord. It believed in the Lord. I refer you to my previous comments about who the Lord is that he believed in. It is the Lord Jesus. Although the scriptures, when they quote this passage, such as in Romans 4 and and, and in Galatians 3, when it quotes this passage, it says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Yes, he believed God, but then the question, which person in God, the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, did he believe? And it would be the Lord Jesus. He put his faith in the Lord Jesus because he, he too was regenerated by the Spirit The Spirit produced faith and repentance in Him, faith in Christ, and repentance for forgiveness of sins. The Spirit did that same work in Abraham. He believed in the Lord. And the next part, and He reckoned it to Him as righteousness. It's God who reckoned it to Him as righteousness. He counted His faith in Christ as righteousness. God reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. I have to say that because you may read a commentator, or if you go to seminary or take some kind of theological course on this, there are so-called scholars, pseudo-scholars, who say we should render this or believe this as being Abraham reckoned it to God as righteousness. Abraham reckoned it to God as righteousness. I'm not making it up. You can find those commentators who actually turn it on its head. They turn it around, just like that. Abraham reckoned it to God. No, we're not talking about that. That's not even the point of the whole passage in the context, or even these chapters in Genesis, or of the whole Bible. No. The problem is, we need to believe for our own redemption. And we need righteousness that we don't possess. We need it from, as the reformers called, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, that which is outside of us to be granted to us or reckoned to us, no to doubt. count yes. it to our account. That's what we need because we don't possess it. So God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay, further. The skeptics, uh, liberals and, and other skeptics, they say that Reckoning it to him or imputing it to him, counting it to him as righteousness, it could not mean this righteousness of Christ imputed or counted to Abraham because they had no concept of imputation. They had no concept of of reckoning. They had no concept of counting from one person to another or one individual to another. They, they were ignorant of those concepts. They knew nothing of those concepts. And if they knew nothing of those concepts, then it must be an invention of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. It must have been a religion that Paul promoted, but that people did not know or conceive of before that. Well, let's see to the contrary. Amen. That that is not the case. And I refer you to these references here on the board. Uh, Leviticus 7.18 Leviticus 7.18. Moses who wrote Genesis is Moses who wrote Leviticus. And this is what he says in 7.18. In reference to sacrifices, and what's good and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable, how to bring them and when. 7.18. So if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, and it shall not be reckoned to his benefit, 
It shall be an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it shall bear his own iniquity. Look at that. If he does it wrongly, then he has to bear his own iniquity. But if he does it rightly, then he does not have to bear his own iniquity. Right? And he uses this word, it shall not be reckoned to his benefit. So we have reckoning, we have substitution, right? We have iniquity, we have these concepts right here. 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll read at verse 31. 31. 831. 831 and 32. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Here we're talking about legal suits, lawsuits in the land of Israel, which the magistrates and the judges need to investigate and need to decide, right? They have these court decisions. And Solomon is saying that he desires for the wicked to be condemned, bringing his way on his own head. So he's going to bear his own iniquity and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. If there is an innocent man, then he's righteous, declare him righteous, and don't punish him. Well, here we have a legal concept. These words, by the way, justification, wickedness, condemnation, um, these are legal terms. Legal terms. So God, the judge of heaven, has a legal case against us. Right. And who is, going to, who is going to take our punishment because God is ready to inflict punishment on unrepentant sinners? Who is going to take it away? Who is going to take it away? And to see who will take it away? Let's look at Psalm 32.1. First, the possibility that it can be taken away in Psalm 32, verse 1. 32.1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Amen. Well, wait a minute. How did, how did somebody or anybody ever get all deceit removed from his spirit? How did that actually happen? How could it ever happen? Because we know our heart. We know what's inside, right? Yeah. Yes. We know. We know our man, our inner man, and there is no way we can remove deceit from within us. No. But David is here saying that it has been removed. Right. He's saying it has been removed. He's talking about conversion. He's talking about the new heart. Right. He's talking about what God does inside of us that we cannot do for ourselves. Right. God causes this change to occur inside of us, and He relates this change to not imputing iniquity. Right. Not imputing or reckoning iniquity on our account. And He says it has to do with forgiveness of sins. Right. Covering of sins. And he's enjoying the blessing. He and whoever else. Yeah. Because he says, how blessed is he? Yes. How blessed is the man? So, this is a blessing not to have our sins imputed to us or punished or on our head. That we don't have to bear those sins. Then, one more reference. We have many more we could uh, read on this. 
even in the Old Testament. But let's go to one more, and that is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, which, according to a plain reading of the text, according to a, the historical reading of the text and the historical context of this passage, according to the intention of Isaiah the prophet and in, in the intention of the Spirit of Christ in Isaiah the prophet, this passage is about Jesus Christ, right. about His death and resurrection, Isaiah 53. 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, Hallelujah. as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Right. Verses 10 and 12 mention the death of Christ. He gives himself as an offering, the death of Christ. And then 11, or all the three verses, mention the result of it. Right. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Justify them as he will bear their iniquities. Because he took our punishment, right. that justification or perfection, that righteousness from him can be reckoned to us. Thank you, Lord. And this is what Genesis 15, 6 is saying. Right. It's saying that Abraham experienced these truths. Mm -hmm. Abraham did. As righteousness. And this word righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him, that is God made Christ, who mm -hmm. knew no sin, to become the sin offering on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. Thank you, Father. That's what happened here, Genesis 15, 6. And one more note, uh, note on verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. God announces here what he had said to him earlier, but saying it again to assure him that what he said earlier, he is still intending to fulfill. So don't lose track of that. Don't think that I am um, arbitrary, I'm capricious, I'm willy-nilly, I, I have other things to do, I'm, I have other planets to take care of, and I'm busy, and I can't make this happen. <laughs> Don't think that way. Really, really, pagans think that way. Unbelievers think that way. Mormons think that way, right? This is the way people think. So that's not what's happening. I did what I wanted to do, and I'm still on this path of fulfilling my promises. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. That's why he left Ur. He left Ur to have the land of Canaan so that Canaan might be a token of God's promises and the means of God's blessings of eternal inheritance. Canaan is a model and an example of the eternal inheritance. Right. That's what it's all about. And also, this is a reminder that God did bring him out of Ur, as it says explicitly here. He took him to Haran, and he le lived there temporarily in another city called Haran. And then from Haran, 
God intentionally and deliberately, after some time, brought him to the land of Canaan. I say this in order to remove all doubt that Abraham was not disobeying when he stopped temporarily in the city of Haran. Because many times interpreters, whether academic or lay interpreters, they will say that Abraham disobeyed and he had a period of of years of doubt and he disobeyed and so on and so forth. That's not what happened. How do we know that? Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 Acts 7, verse 1. Acts 7, 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Stephen said, Stephen said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. That's Genesis 15, 7. We just read that. And said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Which is a citation from Genesis 12, verse 1, 12, 1 to 3. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. When Stephen recounts these things about Abraham, he's not saying Abraham lacked faith. He's trying to say Abraham did the will of God And what I'm preaching, this gospel I'm preaching, is consistent with what God promised to Abraham. And notice, it says in in verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham before he lived in Haran, gave him the promises, and then after he went to Haran, it says God removed him into this country, that is, in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel. He removed him into this country. That is, God is the one who said, stop here in Haran temporarily. His father died, and then after the father died, God said, okay, now it's time for you to go to Canaan. That's what happened. He obeyed. Abraham obeyed, not just with lip service, not just in his mind, not just in his mind saying he believed in the Lord, but it showed in his actions. In seeing things that are unseen and not understanding the the place initially where he was supposed to go, that's why he went to Haran first. And then apparently, at least by that point, he said, now I want you to go to your final destination, the land of Canaan. And he did that. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, 11 11 and 12 and all the way to verse 16 says, he went out not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. All of this he obeyed even though he did not know everything all at once, he obeyed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.